0: And welcome to episode 22 of Charlie's GeekCast. My name is Charlie Niemeyer and today we are going to venture over to the Marvel Universe to look at an issue of the world's greatest comics magazine. Now, back in 1997, I was 17 and I found myself with a good paying job and a desire to expand my comics collecting. Up until that point, really the only books I'd been collecting were... Superman and Batman with a few Flash and Green Lanterns thrown in for good measure, and JLA had just started up, so I was just picking, starting to pick that up, so I decided to go over to Marvel. Now, over at Marvel, the Heroes Reborn experiment was coming to an end, and some of their well-known titles were getting new number one issues. As such, I thought it would be a good time to try some Marvel books so I started picking up all four of the Heroes Return titles, Captain America, Iron Man, Fantastic Four, and The Avengers. Now, all four titles really intrigued me, and while they all remain on my pull list, and I enjoyed them all quite a bit, my favorite was the Fantastic Four, and is the one I stuck with the longest. I dropped Iron Man and The Avengers after Kurt Busiek left. I dropped Cap after issue 50 of his book, because it started a new new thing post-9-11, and it just wasn't the cap that I wanted to be reading at the time, but I stuck with Fantastic Four until the end of Mark Waid's run, and the big difference is that the FF are a family, which gives it a totally different dynamic than any of the other books. Scott Lobdell and Alan Davis worked on the first three issues of this volume before Chris Claremont and Salvador LaRocca took over, and while many people point out that Claremont just had the FF going up against some of his old X-Men villains, as someone who hadn't read much Marvel before this, I didn't know any better, so... I just enjoyed it. And while I've read other runs on the title, I always have this warm spot for this era of the Fantastic Four. As such, I've been wanting to cover this for quite a while, and I'm really glad that I finally have the opportunity, and the fact that I'm recording this between two different episodes of the Fantastic Cast that just happens to guest star me, haha, that makes it even better. So let's get into this issue, but first, here's a couple promos.
1: After these messages, we'll be
0: right back. The Phantom Zone, home of Krypton's worst criminals. But what would happen if they escaped and found themselves on a planet whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave them fantastic superpowers? Especially when they also put Superman in the Phantom Zone in the process. Find out starting October 9th when I, Charlie Niemeyer, cover all four issues of the Phantom Zone miniseries in a special crossover between my two shows, Superman of the Bronze Age and Charlie's Geekcast. It's Kryptonian criminals versus the world's greatest superheroes, while Superman tries to get back to Earth. All this October at supermanofthebronzeage.com, charliesgeekcast.com, and supermanpodcastnetwork.com.
1: Born of an age. The founding of a family. You know we haven't done enough research into the effects of cosmic rays. We've got to take that chance. Conditions are right tonight. Let's go! They're penetrating the ship. Our shielding isn't strong enough. I feel like I'm burning up. Too heavy. Can't move. Too heavy. We're all alive. I feel so strange. You're fading away. I can't see you at all anymore.
2: Look what's happened to you. You
1: are changing. Oh, Reed, not you too. What happened to me? To all of us? I can fly. We gotta use that power to help mankind, right? And so was born the Fantastic Four. For soon the mole man will have the entire world in his power. I am the mightiest living mortal on Earth. And now, mankind shall feel that minds. The Fantastic Four. Little they dream, they're but palms and a hand. Adopted Dr. Doom.
0: The Human Torch will be the Puppet Master's next victim. You things can't change the way I can. That means I'm the most powerful person on Earth.
1: I've been expecting you. For I am a thinker. I vow never to return, my lord, until the fantastic horror no more, and the planet Earth is no more. You're in the presence of the awesome Ramatans, king of kings, master of men and Lord in the seven suns. Fool, you you're just a muscular freak, blind or hawk. Stop! You must not enter the castle of Diablo. My, My journey, journey has is ended. This planet shall sustain me until it has been drain drained of all, all elemental life. So be Galactus. Flame on! It's in time! The Fantastic Four, from the very beginning, witnessed the origins of a legend. The Fantastic Cast, FFcast.libsyn.com.
0: Fantastic Four Volume Three Number One had a cover date of January 1998 and an on-sale date of November 5, 1997, with a cover price of two dollars and ninety-nine cents. Now, the, this issue sports two covers. Uh, one is the main, is the regular edition cover, and it's a wraparound cover. You have the Fantastic Four on the front with the villains that they're going to be fighting this issue on the back cover which is fine and they've got some ruins behind them it looks really cool the colors really pop it looks awesome and it's alan davis art i mean you can't go wrong with that the other cover the collector's edition cover takes the basically takes the image of the fan of the four members of the fantastic four and they're kind of behind this sunburst. All the Heroes Return books did this. It's called the sunburst cover. They take this logo that they go with, not the actual comic logo, but a logo, for instance, for the FF, it's the four inside of a circle. For the Avengers, it's the A symbol, that kind of thing. Uh, They take that symbol, and they make it look like that's the sun, either rising or setting. And then behind it they have the hero of the issue. So it really looks cool, and I'll be posting that up as part of the show notes. But that's the other cover. Both of which are by Alan Davis. Now, at this point in Marvel Comics, what they they were doing this really cool thing where the inside back or the inside front cover folded open and it would have this cool Actually Marvel kinda still does this now, but it would have this a cool thing where we give you a little bit of a brief history of the characters and also bring you up to speed on what's been happening recently. So I'm not going to go through this whole thing basically the once one column tells you the origin of the team which I'm sure everybody knows then it's got four little paragraphs on each team telling you about their powers and everything and then we've got the part where they tell you about previously, so I will read this one just to kind of bring you up to speed of where we are in this. So, in a final desperate struggle to defeat the near-omnipotent villain Onslaught, the Fantastic Four, as well as a host of other heroes, seemingly sacrificed their lives for the good of humanity. In truth, however, the fabulous foursome and their companions have been saved at the last moment by young Franklin Richards, the son of Mr. Fantastic and the Invisible Woman. A boy possessed of almost godlike power, he subconsciously created a pocket universe where his loved ones lived alternate versions of their lives and adventures for some months. In time, however, Reed Richards deduced the true nature of their universe. It soon became apparent that an event of apocalyptic proportions was approaching for both universes. The enigmatic, star-spanning celestials demanded that Franklin choose which reality would survive the cataclysm. But through the heroism of the youth, his parents, and many others, both worlds were spared. The ordeal that Franklin drained of his enormous might, but now his family is back and better than ever. And that basically explains it. The title of this issue is Viva la Fantastique. Written by Scott LaBell, penciled by Alan Davis, inked by Mark Farmer, colored by Liquid Graphics, lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft, edited by Mark Powers, and the editor-in-chief was Bob Harris. By the way, before I get into the notes, when it comes to the Fantastic Four, I just cannot use their code names when I do a synopsis. It just doesn't seem right. Um, same thing happened when I was on the Fantastic cast. So, just as a warning, I'm going to be referring to the four of them by their first names throughout the synopsis. Far below the surface of the Earth, near the very core, the Mole Man gathers his moloids together to announce that the time is now right to begin an invasion of the surface world. However, his speech is interrupted by the Moloid on Surface Watch, who arrives with news that causes the whole that causes the Moleman to change his mind and postpone his plans, for it appears that the Fantastic Four have returned. Speaking of the FF, they are they are way down south in Antarctica, helping Reed conduct tests on his electromagnetic Mason velocerator. Say that three times fast. Things are about to begin when Johnny decides his it's. Prank playing time and surprises Ben by flying down between his legs. No comment, which also melts part of the cliff he's standing on, causing him to experience a wily coyote type of fall. Surprisingly, Ben lands somewhat gracefully, thankful that the auto ignition didn't kick into in, didn't kick in automatically. Then the auto ignition kicks in automatically, sending Ben flying uncontrollably. Johnny flies up to pretend to pull him over like a police officer, but Ben grabs him as they begin to tumble, collecting snow around them to become a giant snowball boulder thing. Meanwhile, at the FF Antarctic base, Sue and Franklin watch the whole thing unfold in their super science binoculars while Reed is too busy checking the readings he's getting to notice anything else but Sue easily stops the giant snowball with one of her force fields, leaving a large enough hole in it for Ben and Johnny to plop through without much injury. While Franklin thinks the whole thing was hilarious, as a little kid would, Sue has another opinion, and while Reed collects Franklin and tells everyone that it's time to celebrate the success of the tests, Sue uses her force field to keep Ben and Johnny outside to scold them some more. Meanwhile, in Paris, France, and we know it's Paris because the Eiffel Tower is in the background most of the time, the preachy part of our plot begins. As Aaron Starr, European Council for the Deterrence Research Corporation, arrives on the site of their, la- of their latest dig amidst a group of protesters who do not wish to have their sacred ground violated in the name of science. Starr notices the head of the group, Yvette Diamande, or Diamond depends on how French that is, and her two friends, whose names are so French that I'm not even going to attempt to say them, and invites them to join him at the dig site below to see exactly what it is that they're doing. The site looks very Kirby-esque, for some reason, I can't imagine why, uh, but it looks like an ancient ruin. And just as Star almost has Yvette won over with the way that they are uncovering ancient ruins that may have otherwise never been discovered, she hears that they're trying to breach the entrance to the ruins. Yvette and her friends try to interrupt the process, but to no avail. At this point, we head back to the Antarctic, where Sue talks to Ben while he grills up some burgers, and he complains that after spending months seemingly reliving their lives in another universe, they get back to Four Freedoms Plaza and find that it's now home to the Thunderbolts, and now they're pretty much homeless. Sue prefers to think of it as just another of their fantastic adventures, but Ben is mostly upset that despite having a second chance at everything, he still ends up becoming an orange brick monster again. But Sue tells him that it just means that no matter what, he's still the same hero he's always been. Minus, you know, the first several issues of Fantastic Four Volume 1. At the same time, Reed and Johnny are talking about how Reed sometimes forgets to bring the rest of the team up to speed on things, such as not mentioning this Arctic complex that Reed's been using for, as a test site for years. While they're talking, Reed's also carrying on a conversation with Franklin, who has a 1,001 questions about Reed's new Transpatial Breach Early Warning Detection System, which is especially important to the story since it has just started going off. Back in Paris, it looks like a scene out of Ghostbusters, as spirits from inside the ruins fly out, transforming Aaron Starr and Yvette's friends into Ba'ar, Exalt, and Stem, who have been known in myriad times and places as The Ruined. Stem tells Yvette that all they want is to prevent history from being swallowed up by science, and that to help them, all she has to do is draw a mystical blade, hold it above her head, and shout, By the power of great... well, not really. But she does have to draw a mystical blade, which she does. And with an I-have-the-power type moment, her body is enveloped by an eerie green energy. On the surface, Sue and Ben use their powers to disguise themselves and run into Tintin, the Belgian comic character, who informs them that Yvette and the others are down in the ruins. Then, Sue uses her invisibility powers to allow both of them to sneak down undetected, and as they reach the site, they notice that modern things, such as the metallic railings, are being turned into very old things, in this case, very old marble. As they come face-to-face with the ruined, we switch back to the surface, where Ben and Johnny are keeping a low profile or as low-profile as a guy who's creating flames with the tip of his finger, can keep. Despite this, Johnny is recognized by Arlise, an American model in town for Fashion Week. And as they head off for a crepe, Ben goes off sulking, until he realizes that he's lost. At this point, he has vegetables thrown at him by the newsboy... Li- uh, no, I mean some random kids. He chases after them, but they soon disappear, and he sees that he is on... or And we see that he is on... Rue de Yancy. Back at the dig site, the ground begins to shake, followed shortly by what looks like an old tree rising up from below the surface. From the rubble, an arm, clad in unstable molecules, stretches up and fires off a flare, creating a giant, fiery four in the sky. Spouting the fantastic, or spotting the fantastic flare, Johnny and Ben regroup and head to the dig site. But when they get there, they not only see the, what looks like an ancient castle, but also Reed and Sue fighting some strange-looking creatures. As Ben and Johnny enter the fight, which has apparently moved to the Le Vieux, which I'm probably saying wrong, but it's that museum in, France, in Paris, Ben is confronted by Yvette in her revealing and uncomfortable-looking armor. After mentioning that he doesn't hit ladies, she thanks him by punching him into the bell tower of Notre Dame Cathedral. By this point, Reed realizes that the fight is just to keep the Fantastic Four busy while allowing the transformation to take place. While Stem attacks Reed, to no avail because Reed's, you know, flexible, bendy, no, rubbery, kind of rubbery, plastic, malleable, there you go, the energy portal that released the spirits of the ruined opens again. Reed has Sue overload the portal with some kind of mass, so while she uses her power to send a bunch of the rubble into the portal, Johnny uses his flame powers to keep the others back. This only works temporarily, though, so Johnny then tries to overload it with his white-hot Nova Heat energy, but the portal just feeds off of his flame, causing his flame to die out as he weakly falls to the ground. While Reed and Sue try to figure out what to do next, Stem hits both of them with a brain blast. By this point, Yvette realizes that she's being used, but she's outnumbered and has no options. But, forgotten in all of this is Ben who picks up the only thing in the area that, for some reason, has not been transformed yet, the glass pyramid outside of the museum. He throws it into the portal, which closes it, and restores almost everything to normal, except for Yvette, who's still wearing her uncomfortable-looking armor. A few hours later, after speaking with the Parisian authorities, Ben wonders how upset the French will be with them for trashing one of their national monuments. But after taking off in the fantastic car they see that the surrounding area is full of people who keep shouting viva la fantastique, which is French for long live the fantastic. And when we come back notes,
1: After these messages, we'll be right
2: back. Oh my God. I'm J. David Weeder. I haven't podcasted for 36 hours. I need to make a podcast. I have to do this. Maybe something golden age. I need a partner golden age podcast obsessed. Got it. John's John's Toilets and Toiletries. John, we need to make a new podcast. A new podcast? I haven't podcasted in a whole day. I need a new podcast. Well, I've been listening to a lot of David Bowie lately. Let's do Starman and his Golden Age Adventures. Ooh, who who was the artist on Starman? Was that Jack Burnley? Yes, we should cover Jack Burnley's run on Adventure Comics and Starman. Okay, I have just the perfect guy because I know another guy who loves Jack Burnley. So let me call Charlie Niemeyer and see if we can get him on a three-way here. Hi, what's up? Charlie. Charlie. We need you to do a limited series podcast monthly at starmanobservatory.blogspot.com. Are you available? Uh, monthly? Uh, Starman, that's Jack Burnley, right? Oh, heck yes, I'm available. This podcast is go. The Starman Observatory, covering Starman's Golden Age adventures. Monthly at starmanobservatory.blogspot.com.
1: He joined the crusade. He helped rule the night. He fought for justice. He wore short pants. Okay, so Robin didn't always have the best fashion sense. But there's no way that he should be ignored, ridiculed, or even derided. He's been an important part of Batman's history for nearly 75 years, and that's why I've decided to give him his due in taking flight. Presented by the Batman Universe, Taking Flight is a podcast dedicated to all incarnations of the Boy Wonder. And every episode, I take a look at the adventures of Dick Grayson, Jason Todd, Tim Drake, Stephanie Brown, Damian Wayne, and all the others who have worn the red, green, and gold at the side of the Cape Crusader. New episodes appear every two weeks at the Batman Universe, which can be found at BatmanUniverse.net. so join me, Tom Paneris, as I put the spotlight on the greatest sidekick in
0: comic Teenage Alright, notes for this issue. Page 5. The Fantastic Four just saved the world from a mole-man invasion without even doing anything. That's pretty cool. Page 6. The Philocirator that Ben is wearing, which looks like a giant Kirby-esque engine thing, has the words dedicated to Stan Lee and Jack Kirby seemingly engraved on it, which I never saw before. I only just spotted it. This time I'll write in the notes. Uh, the last panel of page 8, after Ben falls, all that's left is his stocking half kind of floating slowly down. It very much is reminiscent of one of those Looney Tune gags. Page 12, I love that Reed is so ingressed in his test results that he's completely oblivious to what the others are doing. Also, on the last panel, I'm not completely sure whether or not Sue is yelling at Johnny and Ben or if she's yelling at Reed for ignoring everything and like not saying thank you or anything. It's hard to tell. It's, they're all in shadow, and she's apparently cussing because instead of words, you've got like a swirly uh, a knife, a planet, a star. Um. Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm guessing it's very expli- expletive-filled. Page 17. First, I like that they remember what happened in the Euros- Heroes Reborn universe. Second, this is a pretty good way of bringing readers up to speed, but it's kind of redundant because of those re, re- that because of those recap pages inside the front cover. However, if the if the issue ever got reprinted those pages wouldn't be there that'd be kind of so I can maybe that's why they're doing it I don't know to my knowledge this issue has never been reprinted which is a shame because this is good stuff page 18 now this page does a good job of telling new readers what Ben Grimm is like he may be rough and gruff but inside he's just a big old soft teddy bear page 19 as with the rest of Davis' retro designs for this version of the team, the new Fantastic Car looks like the old tub model, but we do get Johnny asking for a more 90s version. I believe they eventually get one, but it's going to be a little bit. Page 24. The Richards run into Tintin, who even point out points out that he's Belgian. Now, I don't know much about the character, other than I can recognize him if I see a picture of him, but I did know of him even before they had that CGI movie... Recently, was that last Christmas or the Christmas before? Page 28. The kids that attack Ben look like the Newsboy Legion. Or, well, not all of them. I I can at least pick out Scrapper and Gabby. I think Scrapper is supposed to be a young Jack Kirby, so him being there makes sense. Not completely sure about Gabby, unless maybe he's supposed to be Joe Simon, or maybe he's supposed to be Stan Lee. I'm not sure. I know Stan Lee likes to talk. Um... And of course, they're on the French version of Yancey Street, which doesn't exist, but it's kind of cool that they have a Rue de Yancey. Page 31. We're in a story that has at least 31 pages. Johnny doesn't say it anymore. Really, he doesn't need to. But he lets the pretty girl goad him into saying, flame on. And on page 32, where Johnny says flame on, can a it's clobbering time be far behind? And on page 33, just a few pages after referring to himself as the Hunchback of Notre Dame, he Ben gets punched into Notre Dame Cathedral. I think that's irony. Page 34. Panel 4 on this page is pretty hilarious. Reed just covers up Stem's face with his stretched hand while telling him to shush as he goes about his business. And Stem's trying to poke Reed in the belly with his staff, but Reed's stomach is kind of stretchy so it's just moving it around kind of funny and a panel five um reed mentions using the kirby scale of refractal analysis which is pretty cool because it's kirby there's a lot of kirby references in here i can't understand why just kidding 35 sue mentions the two years real time that reed was off the team due to apparently dying the team is able to work together on their own without Reed having to do orders all the time in fact they're doing what he's trying to tell them to do already before he says it which he's still not quite used to because he wasn't back that long before the whole Heroes Reborn thing started so and the final page which is either page 43 or 44 depending on the count because the page just didn't have numbers on them so yeah um This is a fantastic shot of the team with the sunrise behind them. It was used on a lot of their promotional stuff. It's just really cool. In fact, I want to say that in an issue or two, this becomes the main image they use on that front recap page when they're introducing the team, even after Claremont and LaRocca take over. Now, apparently, that I'm thinking they were supposed to the whole time, but they weren't going to be ready in time, so that's why... Davis and Labdell are cu- taking the first three issues. In any event, it, it, this is just a fun book. Anyway, overall, speaking with Extreme Prejudice, I think this is a great reintroduction of the Fantastic Four. Keep in mind that when I read this issue, I didn't know much about the team outside of the major basics. I knew the names. I knew Johnny had fire powers. Um, well, I knew their names and their powers. That was about it. You know, stuff you could get... uh, gleaming off of a random issue of Spider-Man, or in fact, I want to say that the only issue I had of a comic that I had read up until then that had the Fantastic Four in it was a reprint of Amazing Spider-Man Volume 1, Number 1. Other than that, I saw them on their cartoon shows, and that was it. So, yeah, I just knew the, the real basics. But this issue not only did a good job of bringing me up to speed considering that I didn't really have enough knowledge, or much knowledge, but it got me wanting more. Like the first issue of Volume 1, we get the Mole Man, and we get all the other things the Fantastic Four are known for in this issue. Johnny's Flame On, Ben's Clobber in Time, Ben and Johnny's Sophomoric Relationship, Reed's Science, Sue being the Team Mom, but also, nowadays, being a badass in her own right, and even the Fantastic Flair. The story got a little preachy with the we're losing history to science talk, but beyond that, I thought it was a really fun issue. My favorite parts were when the team was just being a family. The scene in the Antarctic was really fun. The art on this is amazing. I've long been a fan of Alan Davis's art with this being my introduction. And I love the look on every page. And while Davis isn't a huge fan of this kind of digital coloring over his art, I think it really enhances things, especially when Johnny's in torch mode, because whereas previously most of the time when they were drawing him, you know, they just color him red. He'll have this yellow flames around him, but mostly he's just red, and they just draw the lines. Well, this one this time they put the lines in over the shadowy parts, but otherwise he's just like an like red with an orange shine to it. The, uh, the way Alan Davis draws his hair is that the hair is flames. The four symbol on his chest is flame. It's just really cool. I, I think part of it is the digital coloring. In fact, if I remember that article correctly, I think that he said that the digital coloring is what allows them to do some of the stuff this time. So that was really cool. I also like the way Davis interprets uh, Sue using her invisibility force field powers. At the beginning of the issue later on when we 're not seeing as many constructs it 's a little different, and the way they color it later in the issue, it looks like i mean it total definitely looks like you 're inside some kind of see through casing but at the beginning, you don 't even see the projections. Ben and Johnny are being lifted into the sky, just held there, but you don 't see what what she 's doing to hold them there uh when the when she stops the big snowball. You don't see a dotted line wall or anything like that. You don't see a beam coming out of her head or anything. You just see her holding Franklin, looking at them. She might be frowning. And the ball just hits some square object with a hole in it to let them keep coming through, but the snow takes the shape of whatever it's hitting, and that's the only way you know what shape it is. It's just really cool. And the next issue, they do a lot more with it that also helps with the digital coloring because... I believe it's he's the villains called iconoclast and I believe Sue's the only one that can see him due to some invisibility thing and iconoclast can see them, but only through their heat signatures and they do the digital thing to make it look like heat, you know, real heat signatures. It's really cool anyway. uh, So yes, the digital coloring really helps. I really like liquid graphics coloring techniques. I've said that before when I was talking about the covers to the JLA issues. They actually stay on the Fantastic Four book from this point up until Mark Wade comes on, or until the Mark Wade issues. So they stay, this is the, of, of those books that I mentioned, they do the, this one and Iron Man, they stay on the covers for Iron Man for a long time, but they stay with the interiors of this book, until Mark Wade's run so it's really cool I just really like the coloring I mean I could go literally I could go on and on about the art and the coloring of this issue but I'll just simply say it's awesome uh, and after a couple more promos we'll take a look what else was happening in the Marvel Universe when this issue came out after these messages
1: we'll be right back yeah. you like cheap comic books right The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast on iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. disparate breaches of geekdom here in this restaurant booth are the most powerful forces of geek ever assembled Ryan the toy geek Scott the award winning radio host Jeff Scott's minion and Ron just run. Right. Dedicated to truth, justice, and geek for all mankind, it's Dinner for Geeks. Dinner for Geeks, Proudly Crusades at 2TruFreaks.com.
0: right, now. Bear with me. While I have read this and the other Heroes Reborn books, I'm not as up on my Marvel stuff, especially 90s Marvel as I am with my DC stuff. So I'll tell you what I see on the covers. Hopefully you can figure out what's happening inside. All right, starting off, because we're going to do these in alphabetical order, because that's just the way I have it pulled up. First up, we've got Alpha Flight number six, uh, with Brian Hitch and Paul Neary on the art before, uh, before the authority. And apparently, is that Puck? Weird costume, Puck. Anyway, Puck's here and we find out who or what is Sasquatch. Which is weird because I would have thought you would have known who he was by now because he was in the original version. But maybe this is a different one. I don't know. Amazing Spider-Man number 430 is, uh, is the story Savage Rebirth. Guest starring the Silver Surfer and... Spider-Man's going up against Carnage. Bishop uh, has a three-issue miniseries. It starts this month. Bishop, Xavier Security Enforcer. With Steve Epting on art, so it's probably pretty good looking. Uh, Cable number 50 this month. Written by James Robinson and penciled by Jose Ladron. Ladron? I don't know. Anyway, he he looks he does a very Kirby esque artwork, so this looks kind of cool. And uh, apparently, he's going up against the Harbinger of Apocalypse. Captain America number one starts this month, and again, it's like I said is has a starburst cover as a variant. The main cover shows Captain America looks like he's stepping out of some wreckage, with his shield with light glinting off his shield and spotlights shining around him and on the sunburst cover it's captain america standing in a slightly different position and his shield has been replaced by a starburst that basically looks like the shield symbol so that's cool Uh, that's also a good issue that's by mark wade and ron garney highly recommended daredevil the man without fear number 371 is the fallout from something And it looks like we've got Karen Page and the Black Widow on the cover. So I'm thinking that's probably not a good thing for him. Deadpool number 12 had two covers as well. The main cover, and by the way, this is, let's see, the cover is by Pete Woods. The main cover says that this is The Drowning Man Part 1. Can Siren save Deadpool from himself? Even though it's got guest art. And and that looks like a classic Marvel cover. Complete with like floating heads on the one side. And then, to make fun of the previous month's DC heads cover, we just have Deadpool looking at you, and it's just his head. He says, hey, look, it's my head. But they get everything on their setup to look just like the DC issues. Even the same font for the creative team. It's pretty funny. Uh, Electra number 14 uh, is a death in the family back when Mike Diodato was doing the work artwork on that. So that looks pretty. Excalibur number 116. Now I've read the first 10 issues of Excalibur and I enjoyed that. But I I don't know about this era with Ben Rob on the writing and melvin ruby as the artwork Eh. but the artwork is early john cassaday art so that's not bad and this is uh, apparently death in venice so they're in venice and now excalibur includes colossus and nightcrawler yeah not not what i read uh generation x number 34 And if they had thought that the White Queen had gone soft, they were wrong. Ghost Rider number 92, in which he's a ghost no more, this month saw the reprint or the printing or the reprinting of the Golden Age of Marvel Comics trade paperback, which I'm going to go out on a limb and say say that it reprints some old Golden Age comics. Heroes for Hire number 7 came out, where the Thunderbolts try to take over. So it's the Heroes for Hire which appears to feature Luke Cage, Iron Fist, Ant-Man, and Black Knight versus the Thunderbolts, Incredible Hulk number 460, which apparently is the return of Bruce Banner. And this issue starts the last cover date year of Peter David's run on the Hulk. Journey into Mystery number 516 features Shang-Chi, Master of Kung Fu, He's one of my fit, fa- not really. Kazar number nine, which was a Mark Wade Andy Kubert book, uh, features him in the urban jungle. Oh, is this the part where is that the issues where Kazar comes to New York or something? Anyway, Kitty Pride Agent of Shield number two came out this month. Man Thing number two came out this month with a variant cover. Looks like a Vertigo book. Must be a mature reader's title. Marvel Adventures number 10 was out this month, featuring the Silver Surfer and the Gladiator. Marvel Team-Up number 5 features Spider-Man with a mystery guest star. I don't know who it is, and it doesn't say. So, who knows? But Spidey doesn't seem too happy about it. Maverick number 5. Which has a cool-looking logo. uh, And he's kind of getting smushed by the blob. Very 90s costume, though. Wow. Moon Knight. Number one, this volume of Moon Knight is by Doug Minch, Tommy Lee Edwards, and inked by Rob Campane- Campanella. And the night is no longer safe for evil. This is just a four-part, a four-issue mini-series. The New Mutants: Truth or Death, number three, featuring the decision. Quicksilver, number three, looks like Quicksilver's gone up against He-Man, or Zeus, or a god of some kind. I don't know. See, this is what I'm telling you. I can tell you what it looks like on the cover. I don't know what happens in these issues. I mean, I didn't even know who Quicksilver was at this point. Sabretooth, number one, back to nature, which looks pretty freaky. Oh, man. More Spider-Man. The Sensational Spider-Man, number 23, featuring Mike Waringo on art and Todd DeZago on writing. Guest-starring Doctor Strange. The cataclysmic climax to Twist. To the Twisted Tale of the Technomancers. I could not have said that worse. Looks pretty cool, though. Uh, Silver Surfer number 135 with art by Tom Grummet? Awesome! Featuring The Witching Hour. I didn't know Tom Grummet worked on Silver Surfer in the 90s. I need to check that out. Spectacular Spider-Man number 253 came out this month. Featuring Spider-Man up against the son of Craven the Hunter. And the she-devil, Calypso. Also, this month, Son of Origins came out, which appears to have introduction uh, origins for X Men, Iron Man, The Avengers, Daredevil, and the Silver Surfer, with a cover by Gene ha Spider-Man, uh, Spider-Man, nineteen eighty-seven. Spider-Man eighty-seven came out. Or, I'm sorry, Peter Parker, Spider-Man eighty-seven came out with art by John John Romita Jr. Uh, and it He's repeating one of those things that happened way back in the Ditko days, in which he's found a way to do several times. Since then, he's holding up the parts of a building while water drips in. That, they use that a lot. Wow. I mean, it still looks cool, but they use it a lot. Um, The second and third issues of the Spider-Man manga came out this month, featuring the Japanese version of Spider-Man. Who isn't Peter Parker? Spider Man The Venom Agenda number one came out this month with art by Tom Lyle. Uh, the cover shows Spider Man swinging, well, actually kind of, I guess, jumping in, as Venom looks like he's about to throw J. Jonah Jameson off the roof of a building under construction. Next up, Thunderbolts number 10, a hero's reward. Apparently, the secret's out. Someone has discovered that the heroes of the Thunderbolts are actually villains uncanny x-men number 351 in which a girl named cecilia is welcome to the x-men and has to deal with a guy that shoots fire that doesn't look fun venom the finale number three which is the final issue of this miniseries came out but apparently it, it ain't over till it's over so you can tell venom's still popular because he's in two different miniseries at the same time uh next up is what if number 104 starring Silver surfer and apparently, the Impossible Man. Oh, this looks kind of cool. Apparently, the Impossible Man looks like he's wearing the Infinity Gauntlet. As Captain America, Th- Thanos, Galactus, Silver Surfer, and a guy I don't know are running in to try to get it. Wolverine, number 120, is part two of the Not Dead Yet four part story, running through the title, written by Warren Ellis. And penciled by Linial Yu. So it doesn't look bad. And this is during Wolverine's bone claws phase. So, yeah. Uh, Wolverine, uh, the 1997 annual came out by John Ostrander. Apparently his humanity is lost. And Wolverine Days of Future Past number two is about uneasy alliances and new allies x factor number 141 came out this month horrors from the future in today's world oh by duncan rolio Rolio, really really not a huge fan of his artwork glennis oliver's still coloring at this point though interesting anyway sorry x force number 73 the death of warpath x man number 34 Apparently he's wanted. Doesn't look happy about it either. x man All Saints Day number one, which appears to be an X-Men miniseries with the Dodsons on art, which is pretty cool. And finally, X-Men number 71, A House in Order. When Cyclops and Phoenix leave, will the dream survive? Can you guess what's happening in this issue? But not only is this written by Joe Kelly, but it's penciled by Carlos Pacheco and inked by Art T-Bear. So yeah this is probably at least a very nice looking issue but that's gonna do it for this episode Uh, next time will be part two of my four-part coverage of the phantom zone miniseries from 1982 which will begin next week in episode 85 of superman in the bronze age so please i hope you come back for that make sure you check out part one so you're not lost and i'll see you then this has been an episode of charlie's geekcast hosted by charlie niemeyer the show's website is www.charliesgeekcast.com where you'll find notes and images for each episode please feel free to leave a comment there or email the show at charliesgeekcast at gmail.com and i'll read them on the air you can also subscribe to the show on itunes i also have another show called superman of the bronze age where i cover superman comics published between 1970 and 1986. You can find that at www.supermanofthebronzeage.com. Charlie's Geek Cast is an I Don't Have a Fake Company name production. All images and music used are copyright their respective copyright holders. Thank you for listening, and God bless. You can listen to our show on Stitcher Smart Radio. Stitcher allows you to listen to your favorite shows directly from your iPhone, Android phone, BlackBerry, or Palm phones on demand and on the go don't have stitcher download it for free today at stitcher.com or in the app stores stitcher smart radio the smarter way to listen to radio